The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Two-year-old Rick Post was bound to a chair inside the shower stall of an abandoned house. Even if he could scream, no one would hear him. His abductors paced back and forth, flashing their instruments of torture. He'd been in this Tijuana dungeon for five days, subjected to relentless rounds of violent beatings. They'd also done a number on his fingers with a set of pliers. Even the woman in the room had taken a turn with them. Where's the money, Rick? It was the same question they'd been asking all week. And Rick Post gave them the same answer. What money? I didn't take any money. It was clear they were getting nowhere. The abductors knew they couldn't keep Rick much longer. People were looking for him, and the police would eventually close in. Join me now as we take a look at the unbelievable case of Richard Post. A story with all the elements of a Shakespearean tragedy and a cast of characters straight out of a blockbuster thriller. You'll hear about jealousy, vengeance, tainted love, and paranoia. A story that veers wildly to the edge of believability. And then some. This story starts in San Diego, California where Rick Post was born in 1945. San Diego is a world-class place that definitely earns its nickname as America's finest city, with near-perfect weather all year round and 70 miles of breathtaking coastline. What more could you ask for? After high school, Rick joined the Army serving in the Vietnam War, and because of how well he performed on his IQ test, he was assigned to an intelligence unit running surveillance and intercepting enemy signals. The skills he acquired providing intelligence for the United States Army would stick with him for the rest of his life. After the war, Rick was honorably discharged, but before long, he'd hung up his own shingle as a private investigator. He named the new agency Intellisource. In the beginning, Rick took on the cases you'd probably imagine when you think of a P.I catching cheating spouses in the act, or performing corporate surveillance. He was also hired to investigate missing persons cases when victims' families didn't think police were doing enough. But it was through one of those missing persons cases where he developed a new and unusual speciality, investigating satanic activity. According to Rick, it started like this. Sometime in the late 1980s, a desperate woman from Los Angeles approached him about her missing six-year-old niece. After the disappearance, she found a series of disturbing photos showing the girl being raped in what she claimed was a part of a satanic ritual. 
We don't know to what extent Rick really bought into the satanic angle when he took on the case, but there's no doubt about what he believed after he solved it. During his investigation, he uncovered a ring he called Devil Worshippers that even included a state senator. Eventually, he was able to find the girl and return her safely to her aunt, but from then on, Rick began dedicating more and more time to investigating these unusual types of cases. And while investigating satanic cults might sound a bit obscure in today's world, at that time, California was still reeling from some incredibly gruesome and high-profile crimes like the Manson family murders. And even more recently, between 1984 and 1985, the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, who terrorized the state, calling himself Satan's right-hand man. And who could forget when he'd drawn a pentagram on his hand and yelled, Hail Satan in the courtroom. In 1991, a newspaper article featuring Rick appeared in the San Diego Reader. The stylish photo of him shows a light-haired, square-jawed man with soap opera good looks. He's dressed in a black tank top and black acid wash jeans, casually holding a shotgun as he leans against a boulder. Imagine Emilio Estevez auditioning for the role of Magnum P.I. and you've got the right idea. He's even wearing the aviator sunglasses. In the article, Rick reiterated the story of how he'd found the missing six-year-old, but admitted the story didn't have a happy ending because he now believed that the aunt had since been murdered by the same cult who'd abducted the girl. Looking at this story more than 30 years later, it's impossible to say whether or not we can take all of Rick's claims at face value. Sensational articles like this were no doubt probably fantastic PR for any PI agency. But what can't really be questioned is Rick's skills as an investigator, which eventually earned him the admiration of the FBI. You see, over the years, Rick had made numerous inroads with contacts inside organized crime, human trafficking rings, and even the Mexican drug cartels. And because of these connections, Rick became an FBI informant and frequently collaborated with both the FBI and other law enforcement agencies. Over time, this collaboration developed into a reliable partnership. Former FBI Special Agent Jeff Thurman, who served for 26 years, met Rick Post. I met Rick Post a couple of years before his uh, disappearance. He had set up a meeting with another FBI agent, and the other FBI agent had asked me to come along as a backstop to the meeting. I don't remember what the nature of the meeting was, but uh, Rick had some information for the FBI he was passing along. And it's not unusual for private investigators to do that. They reach out to law enforcement fairly regularly. I'd had that happen too on other cases. So that was my one contact with Rick. My impression of him at the time was that he was an extremely charming man, very friendly, very ingratiating. I think he had all the skills and qualities present right there that showed why he was a very successful private investigator. Very smooth, uh, like I said, a very friendly person. Unfortunately, Rick's busy work schedule took a toll on his marriages, and by the mid-90s, he'd been divorced twice. Though he maintained strong friendships with his ex-wives and continued to be an involved father to his four children, while Rick may have had some failures in the romance department, his agency, Intellisource, was expanding, and soon Rick hired another employee named John Kruger. 
Although John didn't have the credentials or experience Rick had, he was eager to learn the ropes and Rick didn't mind being a mentor. So John was given an entry-level position with entry-level pay. By 1997, business was booming. It was also the year where a damsel in distress came waltzing into IntelliSource and changed Rick Post's life forever. Her name was Kimberly Bailey. She was slender, attractive, and in her early 40s. She was also very rich, having made her millions in the wellness industry, selling a biofrequency device she marketed under a variety of names, such as Astropulse, The Last Seed, Naturetronics, and NatureTech. The device was basically a black box you'd turn on, crank the knob, and then grip two copper tubes. It would then emit electromagnetic waves into the body that could supposedly cure a whole spectrum of diseases, from cancer to AIDS. The pseudoscience behind it was based on the belief that the human body has energy fields, and those energy fields can be adjusted to boost wellness. Now we all know the trillion dollar wellness industry has its fair share of hucksters, con artists, and snake oil salesmen, from fat diets, tummy wraps that promise to shrink your waistline, to serums that turn back the clock. This is an unregulated industry that operates on false promises extolling the virtues of their products with little to no scientific backing. Kimberly's biofrequency device that had made her a millionaire was no different. Marketing materials for Astropulse was padded with dubious credentials from an organization called the Royal Rife Research Society. On the surface, it claimed to be an unbiased third-party research organization, but of course, Kimberly's device was the only product. And since the American Medical Association denounced earlier iterations of biofrequency devices, Astropulse was certainly not FDA approved. Joining us to explain these odd biofrequency devices is Jonathan Jerry, a science communicator with a master's degree in molecular biology. He's also the writer and host of Cracked Science on YouTube and co-host on the popular podcast, The Body of Evidence, covering a range of medical misinformation and wellness fallacies. The concept of a frequency device being able to treat illness goes back at least a century. It was popularized by people like Dr. Albert Abrams and Royal Rife. All of these devices are based on the mistaken idea that our bodies emit some sort of energy field. What that energy is, is not always clear. Sometimes we're talking mystical energy and we enter the realm of spirituality and new age beliefs. This alleged energy field is supposed to vibrate at a certain frequency when the body's healthy and at a different frequency when the body's ill. And these frequency machines, like Rife devices, they're claimed to deliver the right frequency you need to return your field to its healthy frequency and cure yourself of disease. All of that is very tempting. It's a simple story with a miraculous device that doesn't seem to have side effects. This is everything we want in medicine, and yet it is completely wrong. This energy field does not exist. Disease is not caused by changes in frequency, and you can't heal yourself with a Rife machine. 
but people who feel better after using a device like this, that's usually due to a number of non-specific effects that we refer to as placebo effects. It's the natural course of the illness. It's the fact that they were taking other treatments at the same time. It's the normal fluctuation in the severity of their chronic symptoms. It's even them convincing themselves that they feel better because they invested a lot of money into these rife machine treatments and they don't want to think that they got conned. But frequency medicine is not medicine. It's just a scam. Nevertheless, much like Pandora's box, Rife's concept of human energy fields and their possible malleability had been released into the world. And the concept was again revived in the 80s when alternative wellness therapies were gaining in popularity. Kimberly was quick to embrace this therapy and built an empire by making her own device. It's a very lucrative business. You're trafficking in the fear and anxiety of the afflicted and offering them a false hope. You're talking mid-1990s, she was making $100,000 a month off of these. And that's a business at the time was primarily cash and checks, very hard to trace. What Kimberly Bailey wanted that fateful day she hired Rick Post was intel on her employees. She was certain someone was stealing from her, and she wanted Rick to suss out the culprit. Rick was intrigued by the attractive, self-made woman who would be his wealthiest client yet, and he didn't hesitate to take on the case. But the relationship quickly turned from professional to romantic, and sparks started to fly between the rugged PI and the pretty entrepreneur. With a wealthy client like Kimberly, Rick's agency began making more money than ever, and as soon as their romance blossomed, Kimberly began asking Rick to help her run her business, giving him more and more executive power over her biofrequency corporation. But before long, mixing business with pleasure turned out to be a bad idea. Rick made the choice to break it off with Kimberly and reverted back to a business-only relationship. One possible reason behind Rick's decision was that Kimberly was perpetually paranoid, believing everyone around her was conspiring to steal her money or her business secrets. Frequently, Kimberly would barely speak above a whisper, always worried she was being listened to by satellites, devices strategically hidden in bushes, streetlights, or even the car's dashboard. Along with her distrust of traditional medicine and science, Kimberly was also prone to conspiracy theories and acute paranoia. For Kimberly, someone was always out to get her. But when it came to the breakup, Kimberly Bailey seemed fine with the decision. She still trusted Rick and they maintained a close working relationship for the next few months. Plus, she still needed Rick to figure out who was stealing from her. The split also allowed Kimberly to focus on a relatively secret venture she'd been pursuing a 33-acre avocado farm where she grew plants to use in her holistic medicines. Kimberly positioned herself as somebody who was into herbal medicine and talked about traveling around the world trying to find cures in nature for all varieties of disease and that her plan for her ranch in Fallbrook was that she would try and cultivate and grow these crops there. I don't know that there's a whole lot that came out of that. Her primary source of income was the black boxes. She was selling through the company she set up called Astropulse. While Rick kept an eye on her business and employees, Kimberly could spend her time and attention watching the farm. 
Outside of work, Rick was still very much involved in his children's lives. Like many custody arrangements, his children split time between their parents' homes. And in August 1998, Rick's 16-year-old son Ian was staying with him for several days. But one morning when Ian woke up, his father was gone. It wasn't exactly unusual for Rick to be away, even for long stretches of time, due to the nature of his work. So at first, Ian didn't think anything of it. But he did notice something that was strange. Rick's car was still sitting in the driveway, and the keys were in the mailbox. When one day turned into two, and Ian still hadn't heard any word from his father, he started to become worried. That's when Ian discovered his dad hadn't taken his suitcase with him, or any of his clothes. It also wasn't like Rick to not at least call and check in, or let his family know when to expect him home. Rick was many things, but a poor communicator wasn't one of them. Even in the past, when Rick would have to leave suddenly, he always made sure to find someone to stay with his kids. When Ian tried calling his dad's work, he managed to get in touch with John Kruger, who assured Ian that Rick was just out on assignment, and that of course, John couldn't divulge any more information. To Ian, it didn't make sense. If Rick was on assignment, how was he getting around without his car? And why didn't he pack a bag? Why didn't he take any clothes? But most importantly, why hadn't he told anyone in his family? Had the assignment he was supposedly on gone wrong? Was he out there somewhere hurt or worse? Just when Rick's family decided to go to the police and report him missing, they got a call from John at the office. He had good news, something that would ease everyone's worries. Rick had called and left a message. Sure enough, when Ian and his brother went down to the office and stood over the answering machine and John pressed play, it was Rick's voice coming through the machine. On the message, Rick said he was in Mexico and would be back in a few days. But whatever relief the brothers felt in that moment was quickly replaced by fear. Because the more they thought about the message, the more it seemed wrong. Although it was most definitely their father's voice they heard, he hadn't mentioned a word about Ian being left at home all alone. And he hadn't said a word to John about letting his family know about his whereabouts. Now, these weren't exactly the kind of red flags that might be obvious to just anyone. But communication between family members is often a language of its own. You know those moments when even just a look from a parent can tell you far more than words ever could. Ian and his brother knew their father, and they knew something was very wrong. They could hear it in his voice, plain as day. To them, his words were like giant flares being shot into the night sky, begging for help. As soon as Rick's sons left the office that day, they called police. The search was now on for Rick Post. Investigators soon learned that the last person to have seen Rick was Kimberly Bailey. According to her, on August 20th, she'd gone with Rick for lunch out in Tijuana, Mexico, and said she had some banking to do, so asked Rick to tag along. During lunch, she claimed two men approached Rick and had a conversation, but Kimberly said 
She didn't really catch any of it because she was reading her apparently very engrossing book. What she did notice was that the men looked like they were law enforcement and it seemed serious. Once Rick was finished having his conversation with the mysterious men, he told Kimberly that the plans had changed. He needed to go to Mexico City right away. Kimberly kindly offered to drop him off at the airport and then drive his car back to San Diego for him. According to Kimberly, she then left the car in Rick's driveway and the keys in the mailbox. She then walked to a nearby convenience store and called a taxi. That was the last time she'd seen Rick. She said she'd actually been worried just like everyone else about where Rick was. So worried, in fact, she'd already printed up missing posters and had gone down to Tijuana herself to put them up. The fact that Rick had apparently gone missing on foreign soil further complicated an already complex missing persons case. For the Post family, agonizing days turned into weeks and then months, and still no sign of where Rick was or why he disappeared. The calendar turned from 1998 to 1999, and there were no leads, no suspects, just silence. The case of Rick Post had officially gone cold, and it probably would have stayed that way if it wasn't for the actions of a very unlikely hero, a bonafide Russian spy. Her name was Svetlana Ogorodnikova. At the height of the Cold War in 1973, Svetlana had immigrated to the US with her husband Nikolai, claiming to be Russian film distributors. But the truth was, they both worked as clerks for the KGB. After arriving in America, the FBI was understandably suspicious and kept them under tight surveillance. But the couple didn't seem to present any serious threats to national security. It turned out the FBI was wrong. Svetlana was really a honeypot KGB spy. Like the plotline of Red Sparrow with Jennifer Lawrence, in which female Russian spies attend secret schools where they were trained in the art of sexual and psychological manipulation, Svetlana relied on the same tactics. She was ambitious and wanted to move up from her lowly KGB position as a clerk and set her seductive eyes on a bumbling FBI agent named Richard Miller, one of the agents who'd been assigned to keep an eye on her. For her, Richard was an easy mark because he was at an extremely low point in his life. He'd recently been caught cheating on his wife and his entire world began to unravel, including being excommunicated from his Mormon church because of the adultery. He was also now separated from his wife and their eight children. Richard struggled financially and was barely able to keep up with the mortgage payments on his San Diego home. To make matters even worse, He'd just been suspended without pay due to being overweight. Not exactly the world's most eligible bachelor. He probably should have seen it coming when the drop-dead gorgeous blue-eyed Russian woman he'd been surveilling all of a sudden wanted to become his mistress. And it didn't take her long at all to convince Richard to start working for the KGB. In exchange for $50,000 worth of gold, $15,000 in cash, and of course, an ongoing sexual relationship with Svetlana, 
Richard agreed to hand over classified documents to the Soviets. Fortunately for the US, someone had caught wind of the operation and stopped the deal before it could go through. In 1985, Richard Miller became the first FBI agent ever to be arrested for espionage. Svetlana and her husband were also arrested. Richard was sentenced to 20 years in prison, Svetlana to 18, and her husband Nikolai received eight years. Svetlana ended up serving nine years and was deported after her release. Richard Miller is very embarrassing that he was actually an FBI agent in a lot of ways. He actually was also caught selling Amway out of the trunk of his government-issued car. He was sent to work counterintelligence, and he uh, thought he could hit a home run by uh, getting an informant who had contacts inside the KGB, and he contacted Svetlana Ogorodnikova and her husband at the time, Russian emigres living in, living in the Los Angeles area. But he got physically involved with her. They started an affair and it sort of flipped where she's getting pressure from KGB people to get information from him. Now, his story was is that he was trying to set up a, an operation where he was going to supply false information to lure the KGB. And, but that's not what happened. I mean, he took classified information and gave it to her with the understanding that she was going to give it to the KGB. But eventually Svetlana returned to the United States illegally where she found work as an undocumented farmhand picking avocados on Kimberly Bailey's farm. Svetlana was uh, convicted of espionage charges in the Miller case and fought extradition for a couple of years and then at some point just decided to give up and she voluntarily relocated to Tijuana. She had met a guy in prison by his own account was a drug kingpin, ran a extensive marijuana trafficking operation, and they got married, and then they, they relocated to Tijuana. Down in Tijuana, she meets Kimberly Bailey, and is apparently an open book about what her life is, and Kimberly is, is attracted to her, and they become friends. And Kimberly invites her to come back up to the United States and live at Kimberly's ranch in Fallbrook, which is a rural area on the north side of San Diego County. And so, Svetlana and her, and her new husband come back across the border in a car and they move up to Fallbrook and sort of take up positions, I guess, as like caretakers of the property when Kimberly's not there. But Svetlana spent her time cultivating more than just dirt. Over time, she built up a very close relationship with Kimberly. And before long, Kimberly considered Svetlana to be one of her closest confidants. The irony here is astronomical. Kimberly's overwhelming fear and paranoia of being spied on was no secret to anyone. And yet there she was, with a verifiable Russian spy working on her farm. Maybe she'd been right to have been paranoid for so long, but it wasn't Svetlana she needed to worry about. You see, the thing about being paranoid and having everyone around you think you're crazy is that it leaves you incredibly vulnerable for someone to come along and tell you that you've been right the entire time. And for Kimberly Bailey, that person was Rick's protege, John Kruger. Envious, upset, and believing he was being undervalued, John watched Kimberly and Rick making money hand over fist and wanted a bigger cut of the pie. Barely making 15 bucks an hour at the time just wasn't cutting it. John believed he deserved more and eventually decided 
He wanted everything Rick had. He wanted it all. And so he devised a plan, knowing it wouldn't take much to weaponize Kimberly's paranoia against her. One day, John set up a meeting with Kimberly. He had some news for her. The good news was, she'd been right all along. She wasn't crazy. Someone had been stealing money from her. Lots of it. The bad news was, it was looking like she'd been the one who invited the fox into the hen house. Because according to John, the culprit was Rick. At first, Kimberly found it hard to believe, but John was able to show her all the receipts, statements, and documents to back up his claims of embezzlement. John told her it was something Rick liked to laugh about behind her back, and if that wasn't enough, he told her that Rick had been cheating on her with another woman while they'd been together. Kimberly's blood boiled. How could Rick have betrayed her like this? She swore she was going to get her money back, but more than anything, she wanted to force Rick to confess to his unfaithfulness and his thieving ways, and was willing to do whatever it took to get both. The response from Kimberly was exactly what John was hoping for. His plan was working. John and Kimberly formed an alliance, and together plotted a way for Kimberly to get a revenge. John's role was to organize the muscle they needed to pull it off, and he chose a Mexican national with cartel connections named Humberto Uribe. The FBI's jurisdiction in the Rick Post case came about because the conspiracy to kidnap him started in the United States. It actually took place in the, at the food court in Horton Plaza in downtown San Diego. And that was a meeting between Kimberly Bailey, Humberto Uribe, and John Kruger. The plan they came up with was to lure Post down to Mexico to Tijuana, and that Uribe and his people would then kidnap him and take him to a location and torture him to get the information out of him about his stealing money and sleeping with other women. And that's, in fact, what did happen is uh, he went down to Mexico with Kimberly Bailey, and they stopped at a pharmacy, and Bailey went into the pharmacy, and a couple of Uribe's associates came up to the car and basically yanked Rick out of the car and took him and... They took him to a secluded location out in the countryside and kept him there for five days, torturing him. Unlike the story Kimberly had given to police when Rick and Kimberly went down to Tijuana, John had actually been along for the ride as well. After Rick had been abducted, John extracted the audio recording from Rick, the one he played to Rick's sons, hoping to convince them that their father was okay. It's no wonder Rick's sons could detect the apprehension in his voice. The torture was enough to get Rick to admit he had, in fact, cheated on Kimberly while they'd been together. But no amount of pain seemed to change his story about the money, and he continued to insist he was innocent. It's difficult to imagine how betrayed and hurt Rick must have felt, seeing that the masterminds behind his abduction and torture were the very same people he worked with. He'd taken a chance on John Kruger and given him the career he wanted. And Kimberly? Maybe her jealousy was less of a surprise to Rick, but how could she accuse him of stealing? After nearly a week of incessant torture, Kimberly, John, and Umberto realized they weren't going to get any answers out of Rick. But they also realized there wasn't any way they could let him go alive. Kimberly suggested 
they keep him locked up forever. But that never was a realistic option. She looked at Umberto and told him, do what you have to do. In late August 1998, Rick Post was murdered. Aspiring hitman Arebe supposedly didn't pull the trigger himself. He ordered one of his associates to do the dirty work. Iribe sort of confessed to a lot of things. Starting on the plane ride after he was extradited, he was picked up in Houston by the case agents and they brought him back. Because of the nature of the extradition agreement, he apparently felt comfortable admitting to the murder, but didn't want to admit to some of the side facts around it. And the reason for that was is that there were certain things they weren't going to charge him with. The best information that we had is that he didn't necessarily pull the trigger himself, but that he directed one of his associates to, in fact, shoot him. Iribe said that, uh, you know, that Rick was shot in the head and buried on a hillside in, in, in Mexico. And he volunteered to FBI agents that he would give up the location of the body if they would get five years shaved off of his sentence. And uh, they just didn't do that. After the murder, John stepped right into Rick's shoes, just like he'd planned all along becoming head honcho at IntelliSource and taking over Rick's role with Kimberly's Astropulse company. For her part, Kimberly went back to overseeing her avocado farm and holistic plant operation. It seemed like John and Kimberly were going to get away with it all, but what John didn't anticipate, but probably should have, was Kimberly's unyielding paranoia. Strange, considering it's the exact character flaw he'd already successfully exploited. And now, Kimberly's paranoia was twisting and churning again. But this time, it was slowly turning against John. Back on the avocado farm, Kimberly's paranoia was ramping up, and she was spending a lot of time with Svetlana, practically the only person in the world she still trusted. Even after Svetlana came clean about her past, but instead of scaring her off, Kimberly was intrigued by Svetlana's lurid history. It made Kimberly wonder if Svetlana might know someone who could help her out with her new problems, the kind of person who could do things for her like Umberto had done. You see, on top of the investigation into Rick's disappearance, she was also facing increased pressure from the FBI concerning her Astropulse device. They were now investigating her for making fraudulent claims about what the machine could do, and she began to spiral. What if she was arrested? What if John turned on her to save his own skin? Kimberly needed to make sure that never happened, and in her frazzled, troubled mind, there was only one way to do that. She had to clean house. She had to burn down all the roads that led back to her. Once the FBI was investigating this, Kimberly... I think, went to an even darker place. She came to the conclusion that people were coming to get her and that people around her were probably ratting her out and she couldn't trust anybody. And her solution, since it had worked so effectively, she thought, with Rick Post, was to have them killed also. And it's at this point that she turns to Svetlana and says, do you know anybody from your days with the KGB who can get rid of somebody? Kimberly told Svetlana everything how she'd lured Rick into a trap and paid Umberto $60,000 to pull it off, how she'd even personally taken turns with the pliers, crushing Rick's fingertips, how Rick had cheated on her and stole from her, and now, how she needed to get John out of the picture permanently. The Russian listened carefully to everything Kimberly was saying, 
But this wasn't Svetlana's first rodeo. She was already thinking 10 steps ahead. To her, it was painfully clear just how paranoid, desperate, and unstable this woman had become. Obsessed with tying up loose ends. And Svetlana knew that the minute she set up Kimberly with a hitman to kill John, she'd become yet another loose end to be taken care of. It was clear to her that nothing would stop Kimberly from killing off all the people around her until she was the last one standing. Kimberly was playing checkers, but Svetlana was playing chess. In the meantime, John Kruger was busy making his own calculations, coming up with a strategy he hoped would allow him to walk away scot-free. But instead of calling a hitman, he called his lawyer. His lawyer then contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office on behalf of her client, leaving John's name completely anonymous. She requested blanketed immunity in exchange for information on Rick Post, hinting that the P.I. was not only missing, but had also been murdered. It's interesting because he's kind of the one that pulled the stick out in Jenga that collapsed the whole thing, too. Whether it was a guilty conscience or his own version of the telltale heart where he's hearing footsteps behind him that aren't really there at that point, nobody will know for sure. I mean, the San Diego Police Department is conducting a uh, missing persons investigation. They're talking to people, but they're not getting anywhere. They've got a fairly strong idea who's probably involved in this, but they've got nothing to prove at this point. Kruger essentially panics. He thinks they're coming after him. So he contacts a criminal attorney and says, I want you to contact the FBI and see if you can get me immunity, get me a deal. So this criminal defense attorney contacts the FBI, who are not working the investigation at this point. They have nothing to do with the disappearance of Rick Post and start laying out all the facts. Now, they try and be general about it and they don't give names or anything, but they, there's a back and forth between the uh, the case agents and the, the attorney Ann Kruger on the phone, but nothing comes of it and they hang up. So the agent's going, well, something's going on. So they get a list of uh, open missing person cases and take the facts that they got from their uh, conversation with the attorney and Kruger and start going through the known facts in each of the missing person cases. And they quickly whittle the list down to one, Rick Post. But it, it gets even better than that. And they start interviewing associates of everybody. I think it was actually the case agents themselves go to Kruger's residence to contact him. Kruger answers the door. They identify themselves and tell them they want to speak to him about the Rick Post case. And Kruger, again, panics, clams up and says he wants his lawyer present. And then he names the criminal defense attorney who had made the call to the FBI. We call that in the business a clue. So at that point, the case agents immediately knew that this was the person who was behind the initial call to them about this case. FBI agents went out to Kimberly's avocado farm hoping to question her, but when they arrived, she wasn't home. Instead, the agents were left nearly speechless when Svetlana Ogorodnikova came out to greet them. Richard Miller's story was practically taught in FBI 101 classes. They all knew exactly who she was. But in a surprising turn of events, Svetlana would quickly pivot from enemy to ally when she told them she was terrified of Kimberly Bailey and proceeded to tell them everything Kimberly had told her. This was a nightmare for Svetlana. The last thing she wanted to do was get involved in some murder-for-hire case, but she had kind of a dilemma, I think. Part of it was, if she didn't do something 
with Kimberly. Kimberly was going to go somewhere else to find somebody that would, in fact, do it. And the second part of it was, too, if you're in Svetlana's position at this point, you have to wonder, at what point do I become a liability and she's going to have me eliminated, too? So for her, when the FBI agents arrived at the uh, Fallbrook Ranch to question her, that was an answer to her prayers. It was also the beginning of a bit of a nightmare for the for the investigators. It was obvious that she had impeccable, uh, necessary, crucial information about this investigation because Kimberly had already been had pretty much confessed the whole thing to her. You know, she had said that she had hired Humberto Uribe to kidnap, torture, and murder Rick Post. That was in the story she'd already told Svetlana. The problem was you have somebody in the in the case of Svetlana who has a horrible track record. She's been convicted as a spy for the Soviets, for the KGB. And over the course of three trials, her story changed dramatically. At one point, she admitted to working for the KGB in one version. And another, she said, oh, no, I wasn't working for the KGB. And I just felt sorry for Richard Miller. And I was just trying to help him. So she's all over the map. And again, the case agents come back to the office and management is looking at this going, oh, God, no, we can't use her. There's no way we can use her. But... There's an old saying, you know, with informants that if you want to get a report on what's happening in, in hell, you don't talk to the angels. And she was going to be the key to this case. This She was the linchpin uh, in the investigation. So the agents were very upfront, you know, that, well, we can't take your word alone on this. You're going to have to get recordings. And Svetlana immediately agreed to that. And they got some very good telephone recordings. And then there was a monumental, I think it was listed as nine hours of her wearing a wire I believe it was on a trip from uh, Phoenix back to the San Diego area. And uh, Kimberly laid out everything again in detail, going in about information on how she paid $10,000 down payment for the kidnapping. And that I think it was then another $40,000 or something like that after he was killed, that she actually at one point was confronted by Iribe after about four days or so, four or five days of torture saying, what are we going to do with him? And by the way, he's seen our faces. And she comes back with, well, how about if you build an underground house and we'll just keep him there? And Iribe's like, no, I'm, I'm done with this. And her response is, well, do what you have to do, which pretty much sealed Rick's fate at that point. In December 1999, Kimberly met her supposed hitman in a hotel room. She brought along $10,000 for a down payment. He'd get the rest when the deed was done. The FBI captured the entire exchange on a secret wire. $10,000 down payment and then $10,000 a body for everybody that was dropped. She also had, I think, one of the most insightful lines in her personality that was caught on the recording in which she told the, uh, the undercover agent, she said that, I deserve to live, they don't. That pretty much, I think, is her philosophy on life. For someone who'd spent her entire life paranoid of being recorded, it's difficult to imagine a person having more incriminating statements on tape than Kimberly Bailey. The case against her was open and shut, but they waited to make any arrests until they had warrants secured for everyone involved. When the time came, John was the first to be arrested in April 2000, but after hearing the news of his arrest, Kimberly fled to Mexico City. She was later taken into custody at the airport while trying to flee into Canada. Humberto Uribe, however, was still in Mexico, and he was at large. Kimberly's defense in court centered on the fact that Rick's body was never discovered, 
which meant there was no proof he was actually dead. She was adamant Rick was still alive and enjoying life in Mexico, likely with the money he'd stolen from her. But it was impossible for the jury to ignore the testimony of John Kruger, who'd taken a plea deal and agreed to testify against her. Even more damning was Kimberly's own voice on all the recordings confessing to Svetlana exactly what she did to Rick. Well, I'll tell you, my personal opinion on all this is that the real hero in all this was Svetlana, as far as all of the players in this. I think ultimately Kruger sort of did the right thing by coming forward, but it was a very self-serving aspect to him doing this because he did get a significantly reduced sentence compared to, I think, what he could have been exposed to. And also considering the fact that he's the guy who set the whole thing in motion to begin with. Svetlana had nothing to gain out of this and everything to lose, and I think she actually got in trouble with a parole officer because she was uh, in contact with law enforcement and didn't report it to her, her probation officer. I mean, I, I actually went down to the courtroom one day to watch the trial when she was testifying, and she was very small and very quiet, and I think you could see that the weight of the world was, was hanging over her, and she knew what she was going to walk into. I mean, there was no surprise in the fact that the uh, defense attorneys attempted to shred her as far as her character and her motivations and everything else. But you can call her a liar if you want to, but you got the tapes and the tapes don't lie. You had Kimberly Bailey's voice, which is what ultimately convicted her. On April 23rd, 2001, Kimberly Bailey was found guilty of kidnapping, conspiracy to kidnap, and using interstate commerce in a murder-for-hire scheme. She was sentenced to life in prison, plus 10 years for her crimes. John Kruger was only sentenced to 10 years, with an added 30 months for selling unapproved medical devices. It's the advantage of being willing to confess first and then uh, volunteer to uh, testify. It's one of the dirty sides of criminal justice. He didn't pull the trigger, but he certainly was the one who set up the whole situation. and. His protestations that he had no idea that this was going to end with Rick's death just ring a little hollow. He's basically the Iago in this story, whispering in her ear. And, you know, it was a mixture of truth and, and I think falsehood. He tells her, hey, you know, Rick Post is stealing money from you and he's also screwing around on you. And Rick had a reputation as a ladies' man. You know, that all kind of coalesced in Kimberly's mind. And I mean, you know, Kimberly's involved in a, in a business where she's ripping people off at their darkest moment, their hour of greatest need. So, gee, would you think that someone in that position might suspect that other people are ripping her off? It's what she does. So you sort of project that on everybody around you. Plus, you get involved in that line of work. You probably have got some ethical challenges in your own life if you're comfortable doing that. I think one of the biggest oxymorons out there is the phrase, you know, honor amongst thieves. There is no honor amongst thieves. John Kruger was released from prison in 2010. In the meantime, Humberto Uribe was arrested in Mexico on other charges and fought tooth and nail to avoid extradition to the United States. But in 2003, he was finally extradited and given a sentence of 25 years. When we see fraudsters making massive profits on their gimmicks and snake oils, there's always a part of us that wonders whether or not they actually believe their own lies. Are they a charlatan or a true believer? When it comes to Kimberly Bailey and her miracle-working Astropulse device, it turned out she was a true believer. Or at least she fell into the category she once exploited, 
sick, fearful, and desperate. In 2008, while in prison, Bailey was diagnosed with cancer, but instead of undergoing standard medical treatments, she requested to use the Astropulse to treat herself, and the prison agreed to let her use it. But the Astropulse failed to treat her cancer, and Kimberly passed away in jail a few months later. In the end, it turned out she'd been wrong about the product that had made her an incredibly wealthy woman. But ironically, the things that she'd been most right about were all the things that had made her paranoid over the years. People listening into her conversations with secret recording devices had landed her in prison. John had been scheming behind her back to rat her out to the authorities. And the paranoia that someone was stealing from her, also not true, led her to ultimately plot a murder. To this day, the body of Rick Post has never been recovered. In an interview on Oxygen, Rick Post's son Ian said that in loving memory of his father, they held a memorial service and had a plaque made honoring his father. It is hard. I mean, there, there's other victims than just the person who's killed. You know, and, and Rick was a, a man who had children. He had a father. Uh, he had family who loved him and miss him to this day, I'm sure. I want to give a huge thank you to Jeff Thurman and Jonathan Jerry for helping us out with this episode. If you want to hear more about Jonathan's work, check out his podcast. The Body of Evidence is your podcast for looking at health through a scientific lens. We do it with skits. Who could have predicted the flu virus would mutate and cause the walking dead? Apart from Doug Forsett, nobody. Jingles. You lose that hair if you stop expert interviews. There are many conversations about should we be banning products with THC? Do we actually see a performance enhancing benefit or would perhaps even be a performance detriment? And discussing what the body of evidence has to say on topics like COVID, diet pills, and fasting. I mean, a treatment will only work if people take it and a diet will only work if people stick with it. The body of evidence, medicine that tastes funny and science made easy wherever you get your podcasts. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>